Good morning, Church of Beloved. It's good to be here with you today. I wanted to start off today's sermon by talking about the fact that we all love new things. We're all attracted to what is new. We love new gadgets. We look forward to new jobs. We get so excited when we enter into a new relationship. If I was going to come up to you and say, do you want a shirt? You'd be like, I don't know, maybe. But if I was going to change it and say, do you want a new shirt? You might be a little bit more excited. You might get your hearts racing a little bit. Think about the new car, a new job, a relationship. We often think to ourselves that my life would be so much better. I would be just so much happier if I got that new bag or if I got that new car or that new house or that new relationship or that new church or even that new president. We put a lot of hope in the new. We constantly think that This new thing, the thing that I'm looking for, the thing that I'm yearning for, that new thing, that will solve all of my problems. But there's a problem with this fondness or this attractiveness of the new. And the problem is this, as tantalizing as it might be, as much as we crave it, as much as as we are drawn to it, newness is fleeting. Before we know it, that new thing just isn't new anymore. Like you could say, I'm really excited because I think a new iPhone just came out. And you'd be like, I got this new iPhone. This thing is going to solve all my problems. This thing is going to make me happier. This thing is going to improve my life. And for a little bit, you might actually be satisfied with it. But give it a couple weeks or a couple of months, and there's always an iPhone N plus one coming out around the corner. And it's just not the same anymore. Or I think about uh, Peter and Stacy. And a lot of you guys know that they had been thinking about buying a new car together for some time. For, for, for a year, if not years, they were talking about it, talking about it. And finally, they went out and bought this new car, a brand new car. It still smelled like the air fresheners. And not even a week into owning this new car, Peter got into an accident on the highway. Someone hit him. And he was telling me, he was like, oh my gosh, come on, my new car. And no matter how good of a job the body shop can uh, do in terms of like fixing up that scratch or that dent, it's just not the same anymore. It's just not new. As much as we love it, as much as we crave newness, it's an illusion. And the Bible has something to tell us about that. If you look at the slide, Ecclesiastes 1 Solomon writes this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. So here we are, we're chasing after what appears to us as new, desperately running after it, and it's just not there, it's just not real. And you can be like, Brian, what are you talking about? My new iPhone, whatever, it's real. It has 10 cameras in it, and that's something that's new. That's going to make me happy, improves my photos. But it's not 
really new. Before it was ten cameras, it was five. And before that, it was two. And before that, it was one. And before that, the iPhone was called an iPod. And the iPod was a Discman. And the Discman was a Walkman. And all this is to say is that it's always just something new, but it's not really all that new. Because chasing the new is like chasing the wind. It's like going out to the park with a big net and just flailing it around. And people come up to you and say, what are you doing? And you're saying, I'm catching the wind. No, you're not. Because newness eludes us. That's That's the picture that the Bible talks about, our attraction or our fondness or the pursuit of the new. But to bring it back to today's passage, when Jesus comes, and we've been in this book of Mark for a few weeks, we know that he starts talking about something new. And you might stop me and be like, but Brian, doesn't Ecclesiastes say that there's nothing new? No, it doesn't say that. It says there's nothing new under the sun. It says there's nothing new in this world at this eye level. But Jesus is the Son of God. He's a king, and he brings something, a kingdom that's from another world. In Mark 1, it says this, Now after John, was, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what Jesus is proclaiming here is the good news of God. It's not the same old thing, but it's something new. It's something different. He's saying, you were created for something. And you've been looking for it in all the wrong places because you've just been looking for it under the sun. And nothing in this world can satisfy that craving for newness. But I can. This new kingdom can. And you were created for this king and this kingdom. The good news, the new news, is that there's something here that will finally satisfy that craving for new. This new kingdom is here, so you should repent. Turn from your old way of thinking. Turn from your old way of doing things and believe and receive this new news. But there's a conflict, and we see it. Because you would think that the most religious people of the day would welcome the newness of this kingdom. You would think that the people who studied and memorized and knew the scriptures the best would be the first to buy into this new news. As we see in this second chapter of Mark and into the third, this is today's passage is one of five episodes that the author recounts together to explain this heightening crescendo of friction and conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment of the day. In other words, the religious establishment has this hard time giving up the old way of doing things and accepting the newness of Jesus. See, earlier in the chapter, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious establishment, they see Jesus not only heal a paralyzed man, but pronounce over him that his sins are forgiven. And they're sitting there and they're saying, how can this new guy, Jesus, forgive sins? Because everybody knows that only God can forgive sins. Is he saying that he's God? And the Pharisees grumble and say, he's committing blasphemy. And in the passage right before this, in the episode right before this, you have Jesus encountering Levi, 
a tax collector, the most socially deplorable person perhaps that you could meet in that day. No good Jew, no holy person would ever associate with someone from this, a person of such lowly character. And Jesus not only associates with him, but he calls him to himself. He not only calls him to himself, but he attends a, a party, a celebration at this man's home. And seeing this, the Pharisees go up to Jesus' disciples and say, your teacher, he, he, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Why is he associating with these people? Why is he hanging out with people like that? What's up with this new guy? What kind of spiritual leader is this? He doesn't look like anything that we are expecting. And so today we're going to look at this episode that was just read by Lexi. And the episode begins with this question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Quick background on fasting from the, in, in terms of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were, there were three main spiritual acts of Judaism. They were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And Judaism, when you're just talking about the requirements, the re- what was required of you, there's only one day that's required to fast, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's, it's coming up in a couple weeks. But there's at least, if you look at the Hebrew literature, the Mishnah, which is, like a, which is a collection of religious uh, writings, specifies at least three other types of fasts. And, and, and these, these aren't unbiblical. Like, you can see examples of them in the Old Testament. So one type was that, the type that lamented national tragedies. Another was fasts in times of crisis, such as war, or plague, or drought, or famine. And the, last type of, and the third type was self-imposed fasts for any number of personal reasons. See, fasting in the Old Testament was a time of despair, of sorrow, of mourning. And to bring it to today's passage, in Jesus' time, it, apparently everybody fasted. It was a mark of being a faithful Jew, of being someone who's really serious or intent on knowing or experiencing God. John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, they didn't have that much in common on the surface, but they seemed to agree that regular fasting should be part of their routine. The Pharisees held an obligatory fast for those who were really serious about knowing God twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. We know from other parts of scriptures is that when they fasted, they whitened their face to make it look like they weren't well. They left their hair disheveled. They didn't dress well. They left their clothes untidy. They made their lives uh, as uncomfortable as possible because for them, the mark of real godliness was a form of austerity and severity, long faces and a solemn, somber spirit. That's what it looked like to them to be godly, and they wanted to seem like they were godly. It reminds me of this, um, this part in uh, Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, and it's, it's early in the play, and for those of you guys who don't know the context, Hamlet is like a prince, and his, his father has died, and his mother quickly marries his uncle. And Hamlet shows up, and I think it's his mother. She says, Hamlet, it, it seems like you're really sad. And Hamlet responds by saying, seems, madame? Nay, it is. I know not seems. I'm going to spare you guys from reading any more Shakespeare to you, but but what he's basically saying is, seem, mom? No, it is. 
I don't, know what, I don't even know what you mean by seen because it's, it's not my black clothes, it's not my heavy sides, it's not the tears or my downcast eyes. It's, not, it's, it's, it's no display of grief can actually show how I really feel. These things are not just for show. Someone could use all these things to puff themselves up and fake like they're going through grief if they wanted, but the grief in me runs deeper than anything on the surface. That's what genuine mourning and sorrow looks like. But the Pharisees, they were the opposite. They would respond, does it seem like I'm serious about God? Does it seem like I'm spiritual? Great, mission accomplished, because that's exactly what I was going for. Remember, fasting in the Old Testament, it wasn't supposed to be about this religious, self-righteous show. It was associated with mourning, sorrow, and, and, and sadness over the brokenness of this world. It's supposed to be, I'm so devastated because this world is so broken. And it become, look at me, I'm so godly and spiritual. A good thing had become a source of pride. Something that's supposed to express humility had become all about self-righteousness and boasting and appearances. Have you ever experienced something like that? How quickly pride can take a hold of something even good. And so you have the Pharisees and the religious establishment thinking thinking about fasting in this way. It's all about externals, it's all about perceptions, and then they look at this guy, Jesus, and where is he to be found? Well, he's with Levi and his other buddies in the middle of this party, eating and drinking it up. He doesn't seem to be sad. He doesn't seem to take this whole God thing as seriously as I do. It doesn't seem right at all, and they ask themselves, what is going on? And Jesus, I think, answers them in two ways, and these will be our points. He points out the danger of fasting. He points out the danger of fasting, but he also points out the need for fasting. So he starts by pointing out the danger of fasting. He says this in Mark 2, 19. He says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And Jesus is basically saying to these religious people, you're missing What's happening here? Because if you think about it, if you, if you look at it, you know, in that time, these wedding festivities, sometimes they would last a whole week. A whole week. But if you're a good Pharisee, if you're a good Jew, what are you doing during that week? You're supposed to be fasting at least two times. So there was actually rules in place that said, no, you can't fast at a wedding. It's not the right time to be fasting. You should be feasting and celebrating, not in mourning, or in sorrow. It's just not appropriate. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. He's looking at these religious people, and he's saying, you're all out of sorts. It's a time for feasting, not fasting. It's time for joy, not sorrow. You're missing what's most important, and he's standing here right in front of you. The best way I can explain this, the importance of the presence of the bridegroom is by thinking back a year ago uh, to Joseph and Katie's wedding. Now they're in, they're in children's ministry today. I, I got their permission, but basically I was going to go to this wedding, and it was, was going to be a pretty chill affair. Like I was just going by myself, so I didn't have to worry about 
my kids or anything, and I wasn't really doing anything, so I was actually kind of looking forward to it. It's nice. And I happened to know the wedding coordinator, and it was a very, very hot day that day. It was very hot. And I was kind of trying to get some tips, and she told me that, you know, it's going to be half indoors and kind of half outdoors. So kind of just show up right on time so you get kind of put in the back that's indoors and air-conditioned. So I was like, awesome, bet. And so the wedding, I think, was at 4 o'clock, and I'm like walking out of my place at 3.50. I'm going to get there right at time, maybe a couple minutes late, but right pretty much on time. And I get a phone call when I'm stepping on the elevator, and it's the wedding coordinator calling me. And I immediately know she's not calling me to pick up flowers. She's not calling me to pick up drinks or ice. I'm going to have to officiate this wedding. And what had happened was is that the guy who was supposed to officiate the wedding had mistakenly gone to the location of the uh, rehearsal dinner the night before. He was like an hour away. And so I pick up the phone. I was like, am I going to have to officiate the wedding? She's like, yep. So I'm like, okay, so I get in my car, and I'm ready. I'm, I'm getting, trying to prepare, think of what I'm going to say, you know, and I'm on my way, and I'm like, okay, but whatever you do, Brian, don't freak out when you're there. Like, inside, I'm totally freaking out, because like, oh, what am I going to do? But I'm like, when you get there, you're going to see Katie, the bride. If you know anything about brides on their wedding days, sometimes they're very sensitive. Sometimes they're a little bit stressed out. And I was like, you just got to put on a good show for Katie. And I got, and, and, and don't freak out in front of her. It'll make her worry more. Just be calm. And I show up there. I'm like, Katie, everything's going to be all right today. She's like, oh, I know. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm getting married today, so it doesn't really matter. Everything else is just details. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> that's right. This bride didn't even care that the officiant didn't show up. but she would have cared if her groom hadn't shown up. <laughs> That's what's important. The officiant, the flowers, the person playing the harp, the caterers, it's all just details. It's important on some level, but really, when you compare it to the fact, the idea of whether or not the groom is there, it's meaningless. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying fasting, all this stuff, it's not really all that important of a thing in and of itself. It, it's important because it points to another thing. And the thing that it should point to is me. I mean, Jesus, not me. All the fasting should point to Jesus. When you're fasting, you should be saying, I love, I, I, I just long for you, O Lord. This world is so broken, O Lord. Jesus says to you, I've come. Why are you still fasting? You see, these Pharisees, they had made the thing the thing. They prefer the ritual to the real thing. They prefer the performance to the person. It's like if you had a boy and a girl and they were really in love with each other, like really in love with each other. And for some reason, the boy had to go away for a year. Some place that there's no cell phone service or no internet. They, they really weren't going to talk for a year. And, find, and the boy says, I'm going to give you this, 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 this ring. And I want you to remember me by this ring. And so the boy goes, and, and, and the girl, while she waits for him, she just looks at this ring, and every time she looks at this ring, she's reminded of his love, of his devotion. 
of his kindness to her. And she cares for this ring so much. It's never out of her grasp. She polishes it. She cleans it. It's so precious to her. It sounds like Gollum, but it's so precious to her. And after a year, the boy comes back and he knocks on the door and he says, I've returned. And she says, no, I'm too busy polishing this ring. And that's an example of us turning the thing into the thing. We're so quick to transfer our love or our devotion to the ritual rather than the relationship. And that's what happens here in this passage. Jesus turns up and these people are just loving the ritual, but they don't love him, they miss him. They don't see who's standing there before him. And they're missing out more than they're missing out more than a party or a wedding feast. They're missing out on God himself. You see, the Messiah is never called the bridegroom in the Old Testament. There's just, as far as I can tell, there's, there's nothing in there that says that. But you know who's called the bridegroom over and over again in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament? Isaiah 62 reads this. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And, your bri- and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So who is the bridegroom? It's God himself. God is the bridegroom. He's going to come and marry his people. Just as you are married, God says that, God says that so am I to my people. And, and, and you can see it all through the book of Isaiah. You can see in Jeremiah 2, 3, and 4. You can see it through Ezekiel. You can see it through Hosea. It's one of the main themes of the Old Testament prophets. And it's this. You cannot understand our relationship with God strictly through the lens of the way a king relates to his subjects or a shepherd to his sheep or even as a father to his children. As important as those metaphors are, they don't cover everything. God wants a relationship with you that is so intimate and so binding and so enduring that he says, you cannot understand my love for you unless you see me as your bridegroom. I'm not just your king. I'm not just your shepherd. I'm not just your father. I'm your husband. And in today's passage, Jesus says that the bridegroom has come. And by saying that, he's declaring that I am God himself. Come to marry my people, and they would prefer to fast than to love me. They love the ritual, not the relationship. And that's what Jesus exposes as he talks to the Pharisees. The danger in fasting is that you can miss the feast that you can miss the bridegroom, that you can miss out on God himself and his love for you. That's the danger in fasting. The second thing is Jesus points to the need for fasting. Uh, And I want to go into this point by building off what we're talking about because Jesus says that he is the bridegroom, that he's God, that he's come to marry his people, right? 
It's so important that we understand how powerful that is, what it means about the way that God loves you. God looks at you the same way that, that, that John looked at Lexi on their wedding day. Right? It's the same way that, 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 that Ken looked at Terry or, or Bob looked at Ellie. When you think of a groom looking at his bride and rejoicing over her, loving her, wanting to care for her, singing over her. When you think about the love that a groom has for his bride, that's what Jesus is saying. That's how much I love you, and I've come here to love you that way. It's an amazing thing. And that's what it means when Jesus is saying that God wants to be in a relationship with you so much that it can only be described as a marriage. But we, have, we also have to understand that in a lot of ways it's a bad marriage. It's a bad marriage. The passage says in Mark 2, 21 to 22, no one sews a piece of unshrugged cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. New wine is for new wineskins. And you see what Jesus is doing here. I mean, it's, some people consider it two parables, but it's really just one because it gets to the main point, the same main point. In both of these examples, the old is more important than the new. The old takes precedence over the new. It's like you have this old garment, this old sweatshirt, this old pair of jeans, and there's a hole in it, and what? You're going to use a little bit of this new to just patch it up. Or I have this old wineskin, and instead of getting a new one, I'm just going to reuse this one because it's good enough. It's about reusing the old wineskin and less about the new wine. Both of these examples, it's the old that I love, it's the old that I hang on to. And that doesn't make for a good marriage. If someone enters into a marriage clinging into the old, clinging onto the old, then it's probably not going to go well. My wife, Dury, and I were uh, having uh, dinner with this couple in our church. And somehow we got on the topic of, what do you do with the letters, gifts, and pictures from your exes when it's time to get married? What do you do with that stuff? It's probably at your parents' house. But what do you do with that old stuff? And my wife told me that her mom, my mother-in-law, went through her room and burned it before we got married. I love that mother-in-law. <laughs> but it's the right thing to do. You don't hold on to it. You don't say, I'll just build new memories with my wife on top of these memories of my ex-girlfriend. Those relationships should mean nothing to you. You should say, I want nothing to do with them anymore. That life, those relationships, those memories are in some way dead to me now. I'm not going to carry those into my marriage. When you enter into marriage, you need to be ready to surrender everything that came before it. It's the only way for a marriage to really flourish. Because marriage is something new, and you have to realize that. Another example is Dury, if you guys don't know, we were friends for like 10 years before we started dating. At least I thought we were friends. Like I've gone to her 
room, and I've pulled out her old yearbooks, and I've gone through them. We went to high school together. I was like, you know, I noticed that uh, you never had me sign your yearbooks. And she's like, well, I probably didn't sign yours. I was like, actually, you did. I actually had you sign my yearbook. So I thought we were friends, but maybe she didn't. But whatever it is, we were friends for a long time. And you know, all through that friendship, we had never fought. We had never had a conflict. We had never really disagreed. It was very peaceful. We got along really well. It was very amicable. And so when we started dating, when we started considering marriage, you know what the thought in my mind was? This is going to be the easiest relationship in my life. Because we, we had never had any conflict. But boy, was I wrong. Because when you decide to change into this new relationship, when you change the, the, what, where this relationship is headed, when you change from friends into thinking about marriage, everything changes. It's new. And you have to throw out your old expectations, your old understandings out. You have to let those die. And holding on to the old, it doesn't really work for our, this relationship with Jesus either. He didn't come to fix something up or to put a patch over something. He came to give you something new. Again, Jesus comes and finds people in love with the law instead of loving him. And just a quick thing about the law. God had given a law, fasting, Sabbath, all kinds of different rules, and there's nothing wrong with the law. It can be a source of beauty and delight. But again, the whole point of the law was to point to Jesus. So people could wait for Jesus, so that people could hope for Jesus. But again, this isn't a good marriage between us and God, because when the bridegroom comes, he finds his bride loving something other than him. The bridegroom comes and finds people holding on to the old way of doing things, rather than saying, I'm ready for this new thing with you, Jesus. I'm just going to let all that baggage die. Further, Talk about how it wasn't a good marriage. Look back at verse 20. It says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. All right, so the Greek word here conveys the idea of a painful severance. It implies a violent termination of his life. Some commentaries link this phrase, taken away, with the phrase, taken away, in Isaiah 53, 8, where it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And what Jesus is talking about here is he's foreshadowing the cross. The place where he was going to be betrayed and deserted and rejected and tortured and left to die. The place of his greatest shame. But I would suggest that it's impossible to comprehend the cross if we only focus on how Jesus was taken away from us and sent to the cross. And if we ignore the fact that he wasn't just taken away from us, but we sent him away. See, Jesus wasn't just taken away from us. He wasn't ripped from our grasp. He wasn't grabbed and taken off when we weren't looking. We sent him away and we sent him to the cross. God himself came to this earth as a bridegroom and offered us love in a way that we had never experienced it, and we rejected him, we were unfaithful, we abandoned him, we conspired against him, we refused to change, and we sent him away. The question is, why would people do this? 
Why do we do this? And I think in some ways we do it because we just love fasting so much. You're like, no, I don't. I'm not, I'm not, talking, about, I'm not talking about the act of fasting itself. But we sure do love fasting because of what it can get us. It's when we're fasting. It's when we're ready to sacrifice. That's when we can say, look at what I'm doing. Look how good I am. It's not just about fasting. It's any source of spiritual pride. It's a, it could be the reason why you come to church, the reason why you serve, the reason why you give, the reason why you lead. And it just doesn't have to be spiritual, any, spiritual either. It can be any source of pride. It can be your work, your reputation, your looks, your relationships. And that's why fasting is so important to us because we find value or identity or worth in the ways in which we sacrifice. How do I know? Because if you were in a relationship... If you were in a relationship and your partner wanted to break up with you, or if your spouse wanted to divorce you, you might start by pleading with them and telling them how much you love them. Maybe that's where you'd start, but do you know where you would undoubtedly end up? By saying something like, I gave you so much of my life. I gave you so much of my time. I didn't put anyone before you. I've done so much for you. That's how you would make your argument. You would say, I still want to be with you. Think about all the ways that I've sacrificed. Think about how good I've been. I'm still worthy of your affection. Or if tomorrow, Monday morning, your boss calls you into your office and he says, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to let you go. You wouldn't probably say, please let me keep this job because I love coming to this nice office so much. You probably wouldn't say, oh, please let me keep this job because I really, really like to get paid. Again, undoubtedly, you would get to a point, if you wanted to stay, you'd say things like, I put everything into this job. I worked so hard. I worked on the weekends. I missed important weddings. I've turned down other jobs. I've been good. I sacrificed for this job. I'm worthy of keeping around. When push comes to shove, when you are your most vulnerable, when you are exposed, when you're really hurting, we turn back and we find our worth and our value in our performance. We find our righteousness in our sacrifice. And if that's enough for you, if living this way is actually really working out for you, then I don't know what to tell you honestly. Because there's people all throughout the Bible who chose the old way of living who wanted the ritual more than the relationship, who cared more about their performance than the person of Jesus who is standing right there before them. And if this world is giving you everything that you wanted, it's probably true that you just don't have much of an appetite for Jesus. But at the same time, you're here for a reason. There's something I would be willing, willing to wager. There's something about the newness of Christ, the newness of the kingdom, the newness of his love that has you at least somewhat interested. There's something about the idea of God himself coming down, not just to be your king, not just be to be your shepherd, but to marrying you that has you listening to me even now. 
And I think about it this way. You see, the Pharisees, they could have walked away from Jesus when he was pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, couldn't they? Blasphemy was a big deal back then. If you think about our cancel culture right now, that was pretty much it. Saying that you were on equal footing with God, that's enough to just cancel you, to say everything that you said before and everything that you say after is just, it's gone. I'm not going to listen to it. He's out. But the Pharisees, they stuck around. Right? I don't know, it's, it's, it's possible at least that maybe underneath all that self-righteousness and legalism, maybe underneath it all, there is this faint whisper in their soul that spoke to them, well, well, I have sins. Maybe this Jesus can forgive me. And, and likewise, the Pharisees could have thrown up their arms when they saw Jesus calling Levi or Matthew. They could have been like, that's it. Why would Jesus hang out with the lowest of the low? A sinner so repugnant and deplorable that no good Jew would ever associate, associate with them, let alone go into their home and dine and celebrate with them. They could have said, I'm, that's enough. I had enough with this new guy, Jesus. But they didn't. They stuck around. And perhaps it was because underneath their spiritual pride, they were again asking themselves, if Jesus can celebrate over Levi, this tax collector, is there some way that he could celebrate or rejoice over me? The answer to those Pharisees and to you today is yes. There's a love that is available to you that, this, that is new in a way that nothing in this world could ever be. There's nothing like it under the sun. And you might be sitting to yourself, thinking to yourself, how could God love me like that? After I've rejected him, after I've stepped out on him, after I've two-timed him, after I've sent him away, how could God ever still love me? He does it by tearing apart and bursting open the old and replacing the new. Let me explain. See, when, when a king sees a subject not following his orders, he might respond by punishing them. When a shepherd sees a sheep just wandering around lost, he might just say, well, it's a shepherd, that's what we do. I, that's what they do. Maybe I should build a fence. When a father has a child who won't obey him, he might discipline that child. But this image, and you see it all through the Old Testament, prophets of this adulterous bride, that's something different altogether. In a group as big as ours, I'm sure some people in this room have gone through this before, but if you've ever been cheated on, you know that in order for that relationship to continue, you have to die to yourself. There's no romantic gesture that can help you get over it. Flowers and chocolates don't really pay the bill. There's no evening of the score. <clears throat> At some point, if you want that relationship to continue, you have to say to yourself that you have to just simply stop being concerned with what you deserve, what is fair or what is right. But instead, you have to take what has happened and somehow you have to die to yourself. And that's precisely what Jesus did. He could have looked down on us and he could have said, how dare you step out on me, the holy God of Israel. 
He could said, have said, be apart from me because I'm done with you. And in our insecurity, we might have done something similar. He could have simply punished you and beaten submission out of you. God could have hurt you to the point that you had no choice but to turn to him. He could have shamed you for what you had done for the rest of eternity. And in our anger, we might have done the same thing. And he could have disciplined you and given you so many rules to follow that you had to earn back your right standing before him. God could have said, if you drown under this law, if you suffocate under the weight of this law, then that's on you because I'm done giving you chances. And in our fear, we might have done the same thing. But insecurity, anger, and fear are not the ways that we find our God described. Our God is a God of love. So at the cross, Jesus put on the old so that we could have the new. All the rejection, the punishment, the requirements of the law that we could ever fulfill, all that was to be held against us, he put those on himself so that we could put on the new. His approval, his acceptance, his love from the Father. The tearing and bursting of flesh happened upon Jesus on the cross so that you and I could step into the newness of his kingdom. So when it comes to fasting, I'm not telling you that fasting is to be avoided or that it's bad. Right? Jesus fasted himself. He taught on how to fast. A lot of times he equated fasting and prayer in the same teachings. The early church fasted. And I think on some level, at least externally, the way that it seems, fasting for us might not look that different. Because it's not supposed to be fun. Whether you fast from food or other things in this life, it's supposed to to bring you to a place of need and desperation. But when it comes to where our hearts are when we fast, everything must change. Old fasting was primarily focused about what you gave up. New fasting is being focused on what you get. And that way, fasting and feasting come together for us. Fasting for us is when we stop giving ourselves away to the other things of this world. Fasting for us means to stop trying to fit Jesus into our old lives or our old way of doing things. And we have to look at Jesus, the one who laid down everything for us, and fasting us, us saying, Lord, everything of mine is on the table. Fasting is a way of saying, I am yours, Jesus. Now I want you to be mine. You have chosen me, O Lord. And now I choose you. I'm hungry for you, Jesus. I want more of you. I'm sick of the old and I really want something new. So when we fast, we say to God, go ahead and tear apart and burst open the old ways of my living because I know that when you do, I'll have more of you in my life and that's truly what I'm after. Let's pray.